Hello, I'm Emily Austin, founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder. Our expectations have become harder and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with a stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, seems to be a mark of status. But when did that happen? Why has the goal become to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? My own experiences of the rhetoric around entrepreneurialism is that everyone's full of shit and no one actually tells the real story. This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed and honest insight into the reality of running a business from some of our favourite entrepreneurs. I'm thrilled this week to be bringing you a really interesting, honest podcast with my friend Namrata, who owns an amazing business called Plenair. You've probably seen Plenair all over your Instagram feeds popping up in a variety of amazing retailers across the UK. It's an incredibly exciting time to be in a business like Plenair, but it is absolutely not without its challenges. And I thank Namrata so much for her candid chat about where she was at in her week and in her business cycle. She has an amazing career behind her and an amazing career ahead. We caught up about some of the challenges mentally, physically, emotionally, and also a really accurate and honest look at the market and what it's doing and what it means to be a business owner and a startup business owner in these really uncertain times. It's such an important episode for anyone who's starting and running a business and hopefully you can connect with it and realize that you're absolutely not alone hello hi how are you how's your week going it's not a good time not gonna lie no it's been very bad It's been very bad since November of last year. And, you know, the thing is, is we're not in a place where we're new anymore. And the newness factor kind of gets you through a lot in the beginning. People will forgive a lot when you're new and our industry beauty is so saturated and it's driven by newness. So it's it's very positive when you have new news. It's it's very positive when you're a new brand and the new brand effect can take you so far. And I think now I'm realizing we've not made some mistakes, but it, it's kind of a new brand effect. But to continue to grow the brand from where your newness begins, it is very, very challenging as a small brand today, even more now after the pandemic, after the cost of living crisis, especially here in the UK, it is incredibly difficult. Also just, I'm sure you know, but just the whole space of digital acquisition and being a brand online, um, there's a lot of focus towards profitable brands. There's a lot of focus towards the market shifting towards more omni-channel approaches and kind of going back to the legacy way of doing things as opposed to, you know, from 2012 onwards, it was just like one big party. Nobody really 
I mean, people never even ask like, Hey, well, you know, can you give me your stats or give, you know, what are you, what are you, what are the metrics? Like, it's just like cowboy, like go, just go. Like it was. And I think a lot of, a lot of that momentum has driven this set of entrepreneurs like this. Now what we're seeing now is like the other day, my friend was like, who's a VC. She's like, yeah, like having a skincare line is like having a Gucci handbag. Like everyone has one or having a designer handbag. Like everyone has one. Why wouldn't you like, just go for it. (laughs) And it's so funny because it takes so much effort and hard work and focus to execute well every day on a brand. And it's something that I'm so, so passionate about the execution of a brand of its tonality of the brand voice that the fact that people just pull a brand out of thin air or use it as their visiting card to think they can be on a yacht in 10 years is, is honestly really sad to me. Like, you know, people come into business for different motivations, but I have never been here. Like the money is fine. Like it's, it's, I'm sure everybody wants to run a commercially successful business. And from a business owner point of view, I definitely do, but that is not at all my motivation. Do you think that is to do with the unrealistic standards that have been set through predominantly social media, but also, you know, the sort of extended media in terms of people's expectations and understanding of running a business? So, you know, everyone, we've seen this incredible glamorization of the Emily Weiss and the Whitney Wolf from Bumble and, you know, Jen from Away and these other whoever they are, particularly, you know, in this instance, women that have used their profile as a big part of their business. So it's become this kind of glamorous thing to do. Everyone wants to say they're an entrepreneur. Everyone, as you know, to your point, wants to boast about selling their company and having a yacht. Or it's almost like our aspirations have been completely uh, misguided in terms of the realities of running a business. Do you think in a way now what we're seeing from a sort of marketplace perspective is that the reality is setting in a bit more for people. Whereas to your point in the last like eight years or so, it was like a free for all. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think there is that whole set of girl founders, you know, God bless them. I think their jobs are kind of delivering the lifestyle that they do, you know, kind of it's, it's complex and it must be so, so hard. I would never for a moment want to trade places with someone like that because it is an incredibly difficult job to, you know, send this message of the lifestyle that you lead, be the brand founder, be the head of business, be the PR, you know, kind of go-to person, everything that they've done for the industry. There have been some notable fails like with away luggage and, you know, people have talked bad about female leadership. And I think it's really, really hard because, what they've done is incredible in so many ways. They've really marketed this idea of female founder for so many young women that are coming up with incredible ideas. Um, But to answer your question directly, yes, I think there's a lot of pressure on female founders and women to meet that standard. Um, And, you know, being a founder is not what you, I'm sure people know this, but I'm just saying it again. It is not what you see on social media that you are, hosting fireside chats and attending the Met Gala and hanging out with VCs eating sushi all day. And, and I think people do project that image because 
there are some people out there that maybe think that that's what it is and feel motivated by it. But if you've run a business and you know, you have for 10 years, you know, that it is not glamorous moments like that. That is someone's highlight reel. You know, somebody could look on my Instagram feed for the last three weeks and just see really nice pictures of me hanging out at house festival and going to work out and uh, whatever, like nice things that people post on social media. Cause again, the unwritten code is you always post the nice things, but the reality is we have been struggling a lot and I don't put that on social media, right? Or who wants to know that? Like, who wants to see that? And maybe I should, I don't know. But there are lots of things that are going wrong in our business at the moment. And I'm not sure that, like, it allows for you to show those moments. And I think the same, by the same vein, these amazing women who are, who are leading these big companies with huge valuations, huge success behind them, they feel no option but to post those things rather than the reality of the situation and be vulnerable about it because that adds to their success. That's what's expected by male investors. Who knows what the pressures are on these women. And it's maybe there should be like an un-Facebook or an un-Instagram where you've like post all the down moments. I don't know. Like you post all the things that are terrible and it's kind of a support group for people. And I think unknowingly that's putting so much pressure on people to want that life and behave like that. And maybe that's the reason we all do it, you know? So for sure, I think that that kind of culture exists. I think it's very damaging because it makes you feel bad about yourself and compare yourself and having those toxic comparisons. But I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon because it also drives a lot of positivity and success for the people that are doing it. You know, I mean, they're people who've made their whole career. And also, what is success? How can we really be sure what we're seeing on social media? I'm sure you've seen that footage of click farms and how people acquire, you know, their followings and underneath 5,000 real followers, they're like 100,000 fake followers. And like, what is actually success? How can you actually granularly know you know, go on company's house and look at the books of the business in terms of their profitability and how well they're doing. But that might not also be the full picture, right? In terms of like... Also, also, I mean, we've seen the biggest, biggest female founder scam in the world, Theranos. I was, you know, reading that book eight years ago and following the story when it was breaking, you know, when it was breaking with the Wall Street Journal. And I was just, I was just fascinated because she was just incredible at playing the part. I think it's also really challenging for people to judge if you haven't been in high growth companies. I mean, I've worked with a few businesses that have gone from nothing to IPOing successfully. And that kind of rapid blitz scaling, the definition of that is growth at any cost. And so the speed and rate that you have to kind of strap in for, you know, the the, the leadership may be toxic and we have seen that evidenced in some, some uh, examples, which is obviously not good. But there is also a reality to these fast growing companies. And I, you know, I always do think whether I guess the more contemporary examples are Emily Weiss or Whitney um, Wolf, you sort of think, well, of you know, of course you're gonna have some disgruntled employees on balance. You have over a thousand employees, you're a high growth company that IPO for eight point seven billion dollars. Like you're not gonna have a totally clean record. And it is difficult. And no man, no man is ever held to that standard either. Like, oh my God, there'd be skeletons in everyone's closet. Like if we started looking at like the big male, you know, like all of, all of that, nobody, nobody looks at that, that closely. Do you think that's you know? because we have an expectation of women to be 
more feminine in terms of like compassion and empathy. And there's more of an expectation on female leadership to be a certain way when the reality is, is that a lot of successful female leaders have quite masculine qualities. I mean, I think there's a huge double standard. You, you know, I think when a man acts a certain way or is highly assertive, maybe even aggressive, he's seen as a good leader. If a woman is, you know, assertive or aggressive or stands up or places clear boundaries while she's, you know, I don't want to use that word, but they're the words that people use to describe women like that. And they're not particularly positive. They're stereotyping, you know, male and female behaviors. And there's definitely a double bind for women who choose that. Um, But, you know, it hasn't stopped strong women from, you know, the main thing is this whole thing around, am I liked? And that's for me, and I think for every woman, you kind of have to let go of that. You're never going to, you know, Emily Weiss is there because she's, you know, she's a thought leader. She has hugely discontinuous thinking. She's created something compelling and lasting. And frankly speaking, if some people are annoyed by that, okay, fine. Like she's not there to please everybody. I don't think she would be particularly successful if she was the kind of person who wanted to please everybody. So these kinds of behaviors around women, and this is something I tell my daughter all the time, and I have had as well in my own mental health journey is trying to please everybody and trying to be this person who fits in and be, and, you know, be liked or trying to fit in with the crowd is a short path to, you know, your own issues with yourself. Like if you try and please everybody and you don't please yourself, you know, that can only go on for so long before the gasket blows. And you have to be that person who is, I don't care if I'm not liked. I don't care. And I'm, I mean, I was definitely someone who really valued what other people thought and to run your own. And I do not think I could be doing what I am today. If I was still stuck in those patterns, those patterns were destructive for me. I have a much better sense of myself of boundaries. If somebody crosses my boundaries I will let them know in the, you know, in the nicest possible way. Um, I did a class on, I mean, I did some work on this on myself. Uh, when I, um, I was very depressed. I went through a lot to get to where I am to, to, to lead and to, to work in the way that I am at the moment. And one of the things that I did was when I spent time at the Priory was there was a class on styles of communication you know, there are four styles of communication, passive, aggressive, passive, aggressive, and assertive. And it was all about being an assertive person, which means if somebody crosses you, if somebody gets into your boundaries, letting go of what they think of you, letting go of whether you'll be liked, and not in an aggressive way, in the nicest possible way, just tapping them on the shoulder and telling them that it's not okay that they treated you like that, whatever it might be. And I think when I realized that I could put those boundaries in place safely with anyone, this is with friends, family, colleagues, people in the working world, I wasn't putting myself last and therefore I was happier and much more calm about, and also feeling in control. Cause if you're passive or you're aggressive, that's letting somebody else have control. So it is very much around your control, taking back control and being assertive. Assertive doesn't mean aggressive. It doesn't mean rude. It just means setting clear boundaries with people about what you are expecting of them. 
And that's really important for your own mental health. And how do you do that in a, in a business, right? Because you come in as a founder and you think, well, I've got to make my investors like me. I've got to be smiley when I do that interview with that journalist. And then I've got to, you know, I've got to give loads of energy to my team and I want to inspire them. And something on my newsfeed this morning said that all bosses are toxic and everyone's leaving their jobs. So I want to make it nice. What's the sort of reality of that in a, in a startup capacity? So let me unpack that for you. And I can also illustrate with an example. So I think, you know, in, in two parts, uh, there's an answer there. The first one is no one's perfect at it. Okay, it takes a ton of practice. You, practice makes perfect. And setting good boundaries with yourself, whether it's in personal relationships or in business relationships, takes practice. It takes skill. It takes gravitas. You have to do it. You have to role play. There's no getting around that. But I've realized the more you practice at it, the better that you are at it. And I will tell you with a great, great amount of regret, Emily, that I wish I had been better at setting those boundaries in my working life. I think things would have gone very different for me. And my experience has also been, I can add, that you get better results and you are respected far more when you have those boundaries in place. So, you know, the classic example of the overworking Asian or Indian female person was definitely me, like last person at the office. Um, somebody called me with a brief on the Saturday I was due to go to Paris with my husband on the Eurostar. I'd be like, yep, no problem. I'll have it turned around tomorrow. Like sick in my stomach. Like, no, there's no way I can do that. This is ridiculous. I make putting my husband last. I mean, he's going to not be happy with that. I'm sacrificing my own really all that stuff. Right. But I think if I had actually said you know, the classic English, I wonder if you could, I wonder if you could give me better notice of these things, I would be more motivated to work for you, like straight up, not in an unpleasant way, but just like firmly letting the person know you are in charge of this, you are in charge of your life and holding them accountable for their toxic behaviors in a very polite way. It's just that I wonder if you could, you know, we're working with someone now who's a supplier and it's a very, very big piece of work. This is hopefully a helpful example for anyone listening. But we're working with someone now who's a supplier of a very big piece of work. Um, we started the piece of work with them. We kind of, you know, life gets in the way. I probably haven't been as involved as I could be, you know, like putting my hands up. And um, that piece of work will kind of help us get the next round of investment that we absolutely need. So now, you know, I'm really like all guns blazing on this piece of work. And the person who's a consultant um, has, for whatever reason, been paid for most of the work. Okay, so they have no motivation to come back on this project and continue that piece of work. But in the meantime, they haven't been responding to emails. But I think, you know, for me, I guess in the past life would be like, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm stressed out about this. I wonder what they're going to think. But for me now, it's so easy to write those emails and say those things and actually hold the person accountable for doing what they said that they would do, you know? So now for, to finish this piece of work, I've emailed them a couple of times, haven't heard back. It's like, we paid you this amount of fees. You owe us this. Um, you seem to mention that you haven't received my emails. Here are screenshots of the emails I sent you in May and in June with no reply. So things like that. It doesn't have to be confrontational or rude, perhaps in an English context that might be considered as like very direct, but at the same time, this is my business. This is my money. This is my whole thing on the line. 
I cannot absolutely, this is not like Unilever budget or some like, you know, VC, like I would hope even tomorrow, like we have investors, you know, I would treat their money like mine 100%, but it is not possible to not hold people accountable for what they say they will do. Talk to them and have the difficult conversations. There's just no way around it. But the main thing is how you land the message and doing it in a way that still feels, you know, motivating for the person and makes them feel that they're valued. That that whole balance is very hard and it takes time and practice. So your business, Planair, I see it in the background, is undoubtedly an incredibly well-designed, beautiful brand. Can you tell me more about it? What was the what was some of the sort of early stage decisions um, and sort of the launch strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think I was really clear for almost a year before we went into the brand as to how I would approach that. I will come back and say a lot of that is to do with I have, you know, 20 years of marketing experience. I've done that at a very big level in a, in a large organization with very complex levels of stakeholders across different markets and countries. So really doing this for myself was a bit of a walk in the park, like much easier when you're the main stakeholder, much easier when you don't have to constantly influence decisions. You need to have rational evidence, but you are the decision maker. You are the unlocker. You hold the resources. So I really had a good idea of what I wanted to do before I did it. I followed a pretty conventional approach. I wasn't like the business person who was, I don't know, maybe a lawyer or like, I don't know, like in finance and had a fantastic idea or had a friend who had a, you know, like with a friend had a fantastic idea and then they jumped into execution. I was much more considered in my approach. I had learned from the work that I had done on, and I worked in baby care. I was part of, you know, sort of delivering this whole extension for Dove into babies, you know, Back when like peer-to-peer was just starting, mothers were talking on Mumsnet. There was this whole kind of radical transparency around ingredients. Um, this is like, you know, around the time Goop launched and people were really talking about wellness and ingredients. So um, I had the opportunity to go and work on a Finnish brand when I worked um, at a portfolio company for, for, for a venture capitalist. And it was it was many different things that had been bubbling away under the surface around you know, moving the consumer journey from offline to online, uh, radical transparency uh, around in ingredients, um, emotional health and well-being of young women. Like that was something I had worked on female-centered brands for most of my life. Like every single brand I worked on is around uh, targeting women. And so I'd had a lot of learnings up to that point in time. But we went out and we did ethnographies because I was like, I want to be informed by what's happening in popular culture right now. I became obsessed with popular culture. Like, I think I, you know, I had read somewhere that, you know, great brands, and I believe this great brands mirror shifts in popular culture. That's what great brands do. They're like a mirror to what's happening in society. So what's happening in, in, uh, you know, in politics, in, in sociology, like, that they hold up a mirror. So I was like, I'm going to go and like, find out what's going on with Gen Z. Like that's was the brief, you know? And so we hired uh, a Flamingo, which is, you know, great. It's a brand consulting company. I guess, you know, it's kind of very organized way to, to manage things, maybe different from other entrepreneurs, but we went and did a big social listening piece. One of the biggest findings from that social listening piece was 
mental health and beauty had become inextricably linked. When you talked about beauty and digital, everything came back to mental health. And so the gap, I guess, that we found with Planair is like, if you have, if you have brands, legacy brands, or, you know, you've always been told like, I'm worth it. Like there are two camps, either functional, rational brands that tell you how to solve a problem, you know, the typical Durham brands. And then you have these other cosmetic brands out there, which is like about the glossy end look and, you know, the Kylie, like the whole beauty aspect of it, which by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. So it's like this girl who we spoke to was saying, well, I'm not 100% convinced by the phony science that there's any difference between brands. She's pretty cynical. And I, I'm, I'm not a problem to be solved. And I'm finding this idea of a cosmetic benefit a little bit claustrophobic. So we decided to focus on well-being and how to create beauty as a, a ritual, uh, a path to wellness, much more holistic, much more about you and your own internal narrative, being present for yourself. And that's really the driving philosophy behind the brand, as well as this idea of being open to new ideas. I mean, plein air is from the French expression for in the open air. So it's fundamentally around this idea that you need to be open to different influences in beauty. There is your own beauty narrative. It's not about fitting in. It's not about having a one dimensional look and feel. It is really for you to develop that narrative with yourself and using beauty as a path of self-discovery in a more open way. And so we're always trying to show that with our advertising and the way that we treat uh, the people that we show. It's not just about an end benefit or solving a problem, like at all. It is very much the whole process of feeling beautiful and looking beautiful. So that's a little bit about how we kind of came to that foundational idea. For someone listening who is either has started a skincare or beauty brand or for someone listening who wants to, what are some of the challenges that they might face today? I mean, the landscape has changed so much, even from the time that we were developing plein air, I think, um, you know, from everything from naming to finding a good contract manufacturer it is very, very difficult. I mean, it was hard to find somebody who would take our business even back then, like to be like, oh, you know, most of the contract manufacturers, it's a very competitive industry. If you give them a call, like they probably feel like, a, I mean, this is what I was told by a fragrance house and by a cosmetic manufacturer. Like we get like a hundred calls a day being like, hey, I have my grandma's recipe and I just made it. And I, I really want, I think there's something in it. <laughs> the thing is, is like for every hundred people who do that, there's going to be one that's going to be amazing, right? And how do you know which one is going to be amazing? But it's almost like, as an entrepreneur, the chips are stacked against you. You almost have to show why that person should take your business. Are you a celebrity? Do you have endless budgets? Um, you know, is there something there? In my case, we had none of that. Um, we had to convince piece by piece people to come on board and work with us. I was convinced that I needed to find the best people in the industry to help me. I'm one of those people who I want to find specialists. I want to find the best. So we went and we found the best person in naming like this, this, he's the grandfather of naming. Like, you know, I really struggled with the naming piece. I think, you know, 
I don't have a legal background, but I understand IPR really well. I know what it means to get a cease and desist letter from a big company, meaning like you have to burn all your stock, you can't even use it. I was very fearful from an IPR perspective as to, I've got to, you know, I've got to own the IP. I was obsessed. I needed to own the IPR of this brand. I needed to create something from the beginning that I could own, that I could sell, that was mine. Um, And we had to find somebody to do that. So we worked with an expert in that area. We had to convince him to work with us. It's not hard. These people are super busy. They're super in demand. They probably get like 100 calls a day too, asking, you know, from people who have startups, asking them to work with them. Same with our chemist. I had to kind of, you said about boundaries before, consistently be politely pushy, (laughs) politely like (laughs) stalkerish. I did stalk a lot of these people, I have to say. Same with our design team, you know, at, at Pentagram, I I became obsessed with this idea from um, a design perspective that I had to find the one person who knew, who, who could translate what I wanted for this girl, this Gen Z girl, how it's going to look and feel into the 2D space and then even ultimately into the digital space. Not easy at all because, you know, like there's some, maybe there's some founders who sketch it out and they know exa- I'm not one of those. Like, no way could I sketch something out or could I make the ad myself? No, I find it amazing that people are doing that. But I'm a little bit more of a traditionalist in my approach in that that agency framework really works for me. Um, we did it in a very simple way compared to what I would have done in my corporate career on a, on a shoestring budget. But for me, it's really about that person finding you an idea that is original. In my case, after having been told that I do not have good ideas, I should not trust my judgment. I should not trust my intuition. Oh, like somebody, you know, like feedback on the name Planair. That's a stupid name. I've been told that. That name makes no sense. You're Indian and that's a French name. That's not going to work. But it's like, this is the whole thing. It's like, you can listen to people, you can take what they have on board, but if you let your self-esteem be linked to what that person thinks or this approval, it's just, you know, it's going to all fall apart right there. You have to have courageousness to keep moving with your idea. In terms of your investments that you made into the company, has there been anything that has stood out as being the best investment? And if relevant, where have you, where have you wasted money? I think we, the name is definitely was not cheap. I'll be honest with you. The whole process of, of uh, creating the name was not cheap. And in the beginning, people were like, well, why did you spend that much on a name? I cannot tell you how valuable that investment was. Um, if you watch somebody on Dragon Den, Dragon's Den who tells you you can, you know, file a trademark for 575 pounds, like, honestly, that is, I will just say that's terrible advice. <laughs> Having been... With a lot of other, you know, colleagues of mine and other founders on the receiving end of a cease and desist letter from someone from a big company, like a big, like a L'Oreal or an Estee Lauder or one of these people, like, I think we invested disproportionately in the name. We found the best expert to help us with our naming. Um, We found amazing people on the design side. I have never regretted that. We are paying a high price to manufacture in the UK to work with the best raw material and ingredient suppliers, to work with the best component manufacturers, like world-class. 
This is like people who make Chanel tubes and people who are looking at the embossed depth on a carton. Like they're measuring what our embossed depth is. Like that is a level of attention to detail that I have given to the brand. It's very important to me. I think that is borne out in how beautiful the product looks. People love it. We haven't had quality issues. That I think has been the reason that people have been very convinced by our products in buyers meetings, in press meetings, in meetings with people who are influencers in the industry. They know that we're really emphasizing on quality. So uh, where have we wasted money? You know, we very early on, we hired um, consultants. And again, this comes back to the lesson I probably learned, you know, when I was working for other people is that we hired someone to help us uh, be an expert in, in, in fragrance and, and clinical testing and things like that. And what I realized was they were so, I mean, to God bless them, they were so busy with their other big clients. They had other very big clients. And it's like we wasted money working with people where I could have probably led those briefs or I could have probably simplified that process instead of wasting fees on someone who isn't maybe giving your project the right attention but I think there's a lot to be said for course correction. You can quickly turn something around. The main thing is just having the humility to say, hey, I was probably wrong about this. I think we need to course correct. And going to that person and being honest with them never gets a bad feeling. Like you're saying, like, hey, I I don't have that much money and I don't think it's being well spent on this. So is it okay to say I made a mistake? Like, can we figure something out? And And landing the message that way rather than being you know, negative or destructive, or it's just, just human relationship management, I think. I wanted to ask you about PR. I mean, forget what I do day to day, but I think it's really a lot of businesses start and feel like they need to hire an agency. What's your experience been of that? And what advice would you give to a startup thinking about taking on uh, an outsourced PR agency? So, you know, that's a really good question. I think, PR has changed so much. But also on top of that, the media landscape has changed so much where traditional PR has become like an add-on. It's very hard to find those traditional PR outlets anymore. And a lot of it is through influencers, through collaborations, through partnerships. Um, I am not at all a PR expert. I mean, I will I will put that out there. I, I think from, for our needs, I would be better served and better guided by somebody who is. Um, PR has never really moved the needle on sales for us. PR for us has been about establishing relationships with buyers, um, you know, uh, gr- having the confidence to, to share pieces of content. As a bootstrap business, all I can say is PR is a luxury. Um, we do everything in-house. We have a social media team that creates content for us. Our community of influencers and creators are creating amazing content. I manage a lot of the creative briefs with with amazing photographers. And I have that like sense of aesthetics and also sense of like where I want the brand to go. And I think, you know, in the future, I would love to have a creative director who's leading that push, like content creation and, and doing that and in-house PR. I'm less like into the creative agency relationship. I find it very stifling. I'd rather work with a remit of different photographers and content creators. Uh, I think that having a focused PR though can do tremendous things for your business and having somebody who you have a relationship with that is long 
that there's trust there, that they understand the brand as much as you. They're advocating for you. They're pushy for you. They're on the phone pitching for you. Um, that relationship is, you know, uh, can cannot be underemphasized. Having that kind, because as a founder, you just don't have the time to do that. You don't have the relationships in place to do that. You know, there may be some founders out there that have existing relationships with the press, or they were beauty editors and they've started their own company. That's different. But from my perspective, I feel that it's invaluable to have PR alongside the content creation. I think in terms of a big creative agency making ads and doing all that, no, totally unnecessary, totally beside the point. We don't need it. And you can work with free, you know, um, you can probably get better freelance talent today via Instagram, LinkedIn, your network, than, than just having the traditional agency approach. And I think that is, in general, I think that's breaking down or that's for very big brands like a Ribena or Coca-Cola, or it's certainly not for an independent bootstrap brand. No, it's great advice. We, we, you and I have talked separately about this, about kind of people talking about how busy they are and productivity and how there's so much going on and how much we assume everyone else is having a better time than us when we look at social media. With that, yeah, with that in mind, if you had an extra hour in the day, what would you use it for? You know, my, my greatest wish for myself is to stay present and enjoy the journey. That's what I learned from my mental health discovery, journey, reflection. So it would be to meditate, to do something for the pure joy of doing it. Like, I don't know, baking a cake from scratch with my daughter. I love the idea of, we, or making something together as, as a family, like going and picking the ingredients and designing what we're going to have and spending the time and smelling the raspberries or whatever it might be that brings you that, that switches the light on in your amygdala that isn't this constant repetitive treadmill that we're all on, but it could be going to the pottery cafe and making something beautiful that feels, you know, heavy in your hand. And it's a piece that you remember. And there's, you know, shared memories behind it. It's, it's the daily context of the relationships that we have with people and the color that that brings and never taking that for granted because you, what I was doing before when I was unwell was taking everything for granted. I took my family for granted. I took my relationship for granted. I was, oh, poor me. I'm the victim. I'm the loser. Everybody's against me and nothing works out for me, right? And what I learned in my therapy, I am actually grateful for my relationships. I am grateful for my husband. I'm grateful for my children. I mean, you know, I know this sounds cliche, but I'm really grateful for the everyday little things that I have. And I, I thank myself for those things. And I don't constantly think about what's missing. That is the daily kind of practice of what I, I try and do. So yeah, if I have an extra hour spending that time with people, this is the real stuff that keeps us here, that keeps us grounded. All of the other stuff I will never make that mistake again, where I will put all my eggs in the plein air basket, all my eggs in my corporate career basket, all my eggs in any basket. It's just, it's not worth it because it could all go away. You know what I mean? Like it could, it could all go away. And like what we have is the quality of now, like today. It's so interesting hearing you speak about it because I think that, you know, the, the benefit of being where you are with all of your experiences, you, you can make those distinctions between the fears that are associated with putting everything in one basket and what that, where that kind of leaves you. 
versus now at the point you're at with your business, it doesn't mean it's any easier. It doesn't mean that the anxiety and stress isn't there, but it means that you set yourself up to win in a way that you probably wouldn't have been able to do a decade ago. So everything that you're saying is is so powerful. And I'm incredibly grateful, not only for you to take the time, which I've sort of blasted through and massively overrun on, but also just your openness. For many people at at all different stages of their business journey, hearing you speak so calmly and candidly about what you've learned and how you implement it and what the realities are, I think is so much more powerful than you. I'm really grateful because I think it will really help people connect in many different ways and feel much less like what they're going through as a sort of solo pursuit. So um, thank you for your time today and thank you for, for all of your insights. Not at all. It was my pleasure. And I think, you know, if somebody does, you know, take something away from this podcast, that would be, that would be great. You know, that's kind of what we're all here to do. I think when you listen to podcasts also, I'm always aware of this is like, you feel, wow, this pressure kind of like, oh my gosh, I have to be like that. I haven't done enough. And I think it's, it's nice to go on a podcast and also feel like the other person does not have all the answers. I don't think anyone has all the answers. We're all just kind of figuring it out. And yeah, that's that's our job too, is like to figure it out and, and, and share back where we can. So it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Emily. I, I feel like I'm, I've gotten in touch with themes that I haven't for so long. So it's been very, very energizing. Well, thank you so much. 